Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode features Craig Fuller. Craig is CEO and founder of FreightWaves. FreightWaves created some news when they talked about the upcoming trucking recession and J.B. Hunt's stock fell a ton. I reached out to Craig, asked him if he'd come on. He said yes. I enjoyed the conversation very much. Craig's a real pro. He's great on the mic, so I think you'll like it. This episode is sponsored by Bastier Partners, a boutique investment bank. Bastier's founder and managing member is Nader Afshar, a fan of the pod. Nader is a great guy. I've really enjoyed getting to know him. He's described as a connector, high integrity, and a low-key version of Byron Trot. Nader is the rare investment banker that focuses on the alignment of interests and incentives. He's heavily influenced by Peter Kaufman's win-win philosophy and I appreciate him allowing me to do some due diligence on his firm and appreciate Bastier's support. As always, none of this is financial advice. All of the information contained in this program is for entertainment purposes only. Please consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions and do your own due diligence. Thank you all for listening. It was really nice meeting some of you guys at Berkshire and gals. Enjoy the episode. Thrilled to be joined by Craig Fuller today of Freight Waves. A man that's been making waves himself, calling for a trucking, I, I believe it's limited to trucking recession. Is that is that a fair assessment of what of uh, what you cover and how you define what you're thinking about? Yeah, so we would refer to it as a freight recession, which is predominantly trucking, but there are certainly some concerns about ocean freight and what is likely to happen over the next couple of months uh, as well. Yeah. Um, I guess the reason that I limited it to trucking was right now, it seems to me that trucking is the immediate impact and the freight recession in uh, shipping is uh, potentially a result of these Chinese lockdown or the China lockdowns. Is that fair? Yep. That's a very fair statement. It's a wild world, huh? It's a crazy world. And I think China is increasingly becoming a more difficult place to do business. You know, for so long, the Chinese uh, Communist Party was pretty much willing to do uh, about anything to develop trade lanes and become a world manufacturing supply chain center. Um, but they sort of have violated that pact in recent months and and over the last really 18 to 24 months by uh, attacking their own uh, business and economy, which has made it difficult for Western companies to sort of depend on them as a de- dependable supplier. I was reading some of your uh, Twitter threads uh, recently and going through your website. And one of the things that I thought was a very interesting insight that you had is that, you know, it's one thing to pursue the COVID zero strategy when the rest of the world is somewhat cooperative. But when you are pursuing COVID zero and the rest of the world is opened up and all of a sudden people want their stuff. They're going to be a lot less accommodative than they maybe otherwise would be, and and it'll be interesting to see if this creates the the uh, catalyst for onshoring. Yeah, I think it it certainly whether it's onshoring or nearshoring in places like Latin America, I think what it does is it forces supply chain executives to sort of evaluate whether they can depend on China as a reliable supplier. So. The belief, if you go back to March of 2020 or even before that, you know, going back to January when China first saw the virus, is that in those days was a lot of information. We didn't have a good sense for how it 
is transmitted, how deadly it is, how deadly it could be, whether, you know, how to treat it. It was an unknown sort of virus to us. And I think largely the entire world was sort of catching up and trying to, you know, play defense at the same time. I think the challenge is that largely the Western world, and for most parts, the vast majority of the globe, have sort of surrendered themselves to sort of living with COVID and saying, hey, you know, this is a is a far less deadly disease than perhaps it used to be. It's a far less deadly disease than we worried our worst fears uh, are. Some of the new uh, sort of variants are far less deadly than even the first variants. There's a lot more information and treatments. And I think as a general rule, the West has sort of said, hey, we're just going to live with this thing and we're going to tolerate it. And it's just going to be a new a nuisance that we just have to live with as part of a modern society. China continues to operate under this sort of draconian view that they can control and mitigate the spread by basically locking down their entire economy. And that's a very different approach. It's one that feels much more similar to what the United States and the rest of the world attempted in you know, March and April of 2020, but largely decided that wasn't a workable sort of the the byproducts or the downside was far more egregious or, or uh, impactful than, say, the upside you got from avoiding the spread. And so I think China has become very unpredictable and is an outlier in how they approach the virus, which is really in sort of Western boardrooms has created a lot of question about whether they're a reliable supplier should be a reliable supplier. I tell you, it's uh, it's interesting to watch the backup at the ports and then think about, okay, well, uh, what happens when China shuts down? And I think you wrote about, you know, it's it's not just the ships coming into port, but it's the truckers that are getting the goods to the ships. And are they able to drive through the cities and stuff like that? And, and, and I guess you had also mentioned, right, that they're worried if they go into a city and the city locks down, they're not coming out. Is that is that fair? Yeah, so it's... You know, the issue is the ports themselves are currently open, but they're not operating at capacity because the trucking operation. So ports is, a, is sort of an organism. So most people think of the port as the, where the ship sort of docks and containers are sort of moved off of the ship and then uh, other containers are put on the ship. The reality is that a port in, in many ways is, is just an extension of the broader area and the broader economy in that area, in that city. And it depends on lanes of trucking and rail and other uh, resources to keep operating. So it'd be equivalent of shutting down your airport. Let's say, you know, Dallas-Fort Worth shutting down its airport or LA shutting down LAX or, or something to that extent. And, and basically saying, hey, our city's, you know, our city's locked down or, or the opposite of actually shutting down the city and not shutting down the airport. It's, hey, the airport's operating. Like, it's fine. But the entire city of Dallas-Fort Worth is shut down. So okay. that means that factories are not opening. Trucks are not able to get in and out. You know, and, and so that's effectively what uh, when we talk about these shutdowns, it's not so much that the port's open. It's that trucks can't get in and out of the port to move cargo back and forth. And because of that, it means that the port being operating, the port operating and being open means it can only handle the cargo that's really on site. The other issue is a lot of cargo as it comes off of these ships, because transportation networks are bi-directional, which means you have freight that goes outbound and you have freight that goes inbound. And so typically when you see a ship, what, what they're actually doing is they're unloading empties 
these are containers that are empty or unloading raw materials from the ship. And those are then put up on port. And then they're then taking in fully loaded containers, particularly China, and transporting those out. Well, the problem is when you shut down your out, basically your truck flows to to move cargo out, then the ships are just not calling on the port of Shanghai or Guangzhou. And so when they're not calling on those ports, it means that raw materials are not getting in and it becomes incredibly destructive to the overall orchestration of a supply chain. Interesting. So the backhaul of it, I'm going to call it backhaul. That may not be the right thing. But like, say a ship goes from China to the U.S. and then back, that that backhaul leg is usually a bunch of empties. Well, that's right. So from the United States to China, it's a backhaul, not the other way around. So the way we think of in freight markets is head haul backhaul. So a head haul is usually where it's, you know, a head haul is where you make all your money. A head haul is where pricing tends to be high. A headhaul just means there's more freight than there is capacity on that lane. A backhaul is the opposite, where there's more capacity than there is freight. So the United States, in the world of global container movements, it tends to be a, if you origin in the U.S., it tends to be a backhaul because we're a consumption economy, which means we consume a lot, but we don't produce yeah. a lot. And because we don't produce a lot, a lot of the freight that moves off for the containers that move off the United States uh, actually are empty. There's hauling air and it seems like an expensive sort of thing to, to haul because it doesn't pay very well. But the reason they do that is they're trying to reshift empties into the ports in China so that they can be loaded so they can come back to the United States. Interesting. So now if the ports are less efficient than they otherwise would be, and your backhaul, I presume it'll probably look like uh, in the ports of L.A. outside of some of these Chinese ports where the ships are just kind of sitting, I guess, unless they divert them to other to other ports. Right. But it seems like that's a lot. Of- well, they are doing the diversions now. So in the early phases of it, we saw a lot of ships anchored off the coast uh, outside of Shanghai and a lot of a large percent is now actually avoiding the the coastal waters entirely and sort of Shanghai entirely. And so they're making port calls in Hong Kong and, and other ports around the overall Chinese coast uh, because they, they don't want to go to a place where it just isn't, you know, freight's not moving. So they're already avoiding, we're seeing as many as one third of all uh, transactions of all sort of bookings, ocean bookings being bumped or rejected by carriers because they don't have the, you know, they're what they call blank sellings is they're basically not scheduling those ships to show up at port. It's interesting. So, and, and I had asked you when we were chatting on uh, Twitter, I said, so uh, how are inventory levels now? And it, it seems as though our inventory levels are largely replenished. Is that a fair statement? I'm just trying to f- I think their you know, inventory levels are at record high. So if you take out automotive inventories, which is really the only sort of, you know, you think about this inventory level is it, it measures a lot of things. It measures retail products, manufacturing products, automotive, et cetera. The, and, on, and cars are, you know, whether it's used or new or just very expensive relative to the unit count. So they tend to have a lot of weighing or weight on the actual inventory levels because the automotive you know, the cars are just such a big piece of the American economy. And so when you take out auto, the automotive sector, inventories are at record highs. 
And, and so as a general rule, American consumers and American businesses have plenty of inventory. What is concerning is that if the ports stay locked down for a long period of time is that inventory could burn off pretty quickly. And some of that inventory very well may be out of season stock. So it may be products that were intended for, you know, the fourth quarter intended for the holidays. And just think about the seasonal items that you would expect, which would be like sweaters and jackets and things that you wear in the winter. Some of those items didn't come in until February and March of this past year and huh. are still coming in. And so uh, a lot of these inventories may be ill-timed um, and they may be out of, it may be out of style. I mean, just take like yoga pants where people were comfortable in sort of athleisure or just wearing around the house and sort of jogging pants and hoodies. Those, as people have sort of returned back to the office, those are not as popular as perhaps clothes that you would are more appropriate for a, for a business environment. Um, and so there are, there are a lot of these sort of anomalies that sort of pop up when you have these disruptions that uh, largely are are just there. I mean, one of the best examples is sort of house cooking wear and sort of bedding. Uh, because we largely think about the economy, we've sort of lived for the past two years with very robust home sales, new home sales, new home construction, people moving outside the cities. Well, that movement, while directionally will still stay in place, I think people are largely continuing to reevaluate where they live and whether or not they live in the city, they still largely have some presence in the suburbs if they can afford it or, or even away as a second home. What we're seeing now is that that shift, the demand on cooking where and bedding and household uh, goods is, is less than what it was two years ago. And the other reality is that if you're eating out a lot more in restaurants, then you're not buying skillets, you're not buying cookware to the degree you were. So when we do channel checks on national retailers, you know we're, we're seeing a lot of the cookware, a lot of the home uh, and gardening items are sort of piling up in inventory levels because the demand for those items was largely exaggerated for the past two years, and, and a lot of that's cooling off. And so that's creating some inventory hangups. I think a lot what a lot of people look at when they talk about inventories, they're looking at components. And so they're saying, well, I can't get a car. I can't get this item. I can't get that item because they're out of stock. What is largely causing that is one or two components that go into the finished good that's actually causing that product to not be delivered. And, and cars are probably the most obvious example. As you go to, to the dealer and they say, I can't get you a car for another year or six months or whatever the number is. I have no cars. I have no inventory. And if you go look at the data, a lot of the cars are actually being produced in full, except for it's one or two or three f components that are not fully in stock, and therefore they can't deliver the car. So probably the best example of this is semiconductors. It's the one that most people are sort of recognize as sort of the, the conversation. But we also have heard things like floor mats, as people have ordered, you know, have ordered a new truck, and they expect these hardened floor mats and this very specific component and the dealer is required to deliver it in full. And what they're finding is that they can't actually deliver it because they're missing that one or two very specialized component. And therefore, they're not able to actually deliver those items. And because of that, we as consumers think, oh, inventories are at record lows. So that's not the reality is. The reality is that inventories can be very high, but one or two components can be missing, and it's just causing everything to break down.
And when you say uh, inventories, is there a way to to drill down through like the so inflation is a big issue, right? So on in dollar terms, I would expect inventory to be high, but I don't. Is there a way to separate uh, dollar terms from volumes? Yeah. So it's real GDP is sort of the number, um, and so you're you're looking at the va- not the value of the item, but the actual consumption or the dollar the the amount of volume that moved, and that's actually when we talk about freight. It's far more important is the number of items moved versus the dollar value. So you can look at the retail numbers. The retail numbers were largely flat. If you look at sort of March retail numbers, a lot of the consumption was in gasoline. You know, gasoline consumption was up 8%. So we look at that and we're like, okay, you know, consumers, you know, in pretty good shape. But when you look at the total amount of purchasing power that they had, they've lost a lot of that over the past year to do inflation. And it's the actual unit count that you look at. So we look at e-commerce was down something like 6% or 7% in the month of March, just in terms of total dollar value. But when you look at what that means in terms of units sold or number of sold, what we found is that inflation is sort of driven that as a, you know, you have an inflationary element to that as well. And so you want to look at these on an adjusted basis. And if we're talking freight and freight volumes, it's really important to understand how many units are actually in the economy, not the dollars that are spent. And we're starting to see, you know, these cycles take 18 months to sort of play out from top to bottom. And we're in the very early innings of a softening freight market. And and there's still a lot of people in, in our market that are in disbelief and sort of in denial about that. And they're looking at lagging historical data. They're looking at government data. They're just looking at data that represents one very small cosm of the market. And the reality is if you look at it in a whole context is we do see lower volumes. And look, none of this should be shocking. I mean, the reality is that we've lived in this inflated world of physical goods consumption and volume for the past two years. And that you know, think of it as a bubble, that bubble is slowly letting air out. And as it lets air out, it people that are in this market, it's really, really catering pricing. It's really creating demand. And those cratering elements are starting to show up in the market. And we saw our first major bankruptcy today uh, in trucking. It, was a tr- it wasn't major in the sense that, you know, thousands of people, it was a couple hundred people were impacted. It was 115 trucks and about 140 to 150 employees. Not significant. It's a good size it's operation. A sort of, it's, a, it's a decent size operator. And again, what we're looking at is, you know, that in itself is not unusual. Bank Trucking bankruptcies happen quite often. What we believe is that is one sort of anecdote of what could be a, a pretty um, – troubling time in trucking over the next couple of years. You know what what is fascinating uh, or well I think what's fascinating about this is I'm listening to you is it's like the inventories right now have been replenished largely I believe. So so I assume that uh freight last year was in a, in great shape. But now if the goods can't even come from China, how do you even move what you may need? Like there, there's just going to be a ton of slack in the system. And, and then do we get into this, uh, scenario where, uh, okay, well now goods are moving from China and then the, and then the freight market gets super tight again. Yep. I think that's exactly right. So what you have is sort of right now, you know, it takes approximately 40 days from a ship to leave the port of China to get into what we call the surface freight network in the United States. So in terms of shipping time, it's about four weeks, three to four weeks to go from China, about 27 days 
to leave the port of China to actually call on the ports in the United States before those containers are offloaded. And if you go back to where we were a couple of years ago, it only took about two and a half weeks. And now we're at about three and a half to four weeks because of the sort of backlog. But they still get here and they still show up. And so it takes a while before that sort of shows up in the data. So we saw the lockdowns happen really on April 3rd. We saw freight demand start to drop off or freight movement drop off in terms of total number of containers booked really on April 6th. And we sort of lived in this uh, environment for the past couple of weeks. It would not be obvious if you were looking at uh, American port volumes. You wouldn't see this impact show up really until sometime in May. And so really the time we would expect to see it would be about mid-May is when we would start to see really a trough in volumes come in in terms of volumes of, of ships and the total amount of TEU, we call them TEUs or container volumes, sort of enter the United States. Those will start to drop off significantly in terms of Chinese to United States uh, container flows really in about that mid-May time frame. And that's when it gets really, really dicey as we go from mid-May into June. And unless the Chinese sort of turn up their economy quickly, and this goes if this goes on for months, let's say, which you know some people believe it will, then it could have dramatic and drastic impacts to that inventory story. Is what will happen is U.S. businesses will start to, you know, U.S. businesses and consumers will start to draw those inventories down. And we'll have the opposite effect, as we will sit with very diminished inventories, and we will basically not have uh, access to products that we would normally expect to have access to. So it's something to watch. It's not something for an alarm yet in terms of, of you know, going to your grocery store or going to the hardware store or going to a retailer. Those items will still largely be in stock. This will show up for American consumers really in the back-to-school sort of phase. And we think of freight as really a cycle, is that when products move from China and you start planning, you, you typically are planning six months ahead, so two quarters ahead. When you're ordering products, you're saying, okay, I need to order these about six months in advance of when I want them, when my peak demand is. So we think about back-to-school is really, that starts really in late July and early August, is when products are in store available for back to school. That is about the time frame where we would expect this Chinese impact of slowing supply chains and production to really be felt by American consumers. If it goes on for months, which people believe it, it could, then we will start to worry a lot about what happens in the holidays and whether we have holiday inventory. And like last year, there was a lot of conversation about whether we would run out of inventories in Q3 and, and whether we'd run out of inventories for Christmas. I think largely the big box retailers did an exceptionally good job of sort of responding to that. Consumers also showed up and purchased items that were in high demand much earlier than they otherwise would have. And I think we were able to sort of shave off what could have been, you know, for many consumers, sort of a sort of a crisis of sorts. But I think what is really concerning as we move into Q3 and Q4, if we see these lockdowns persist through the summer and into the fall, I would be really concerned about the lack of inventory. The other thing that you got to remember about supply chains, these are webs and they're interconnected. And so just because the ships, is, so we see China starts to resume its economy, it doesn't mean that all of the products and components and raw materials are there 
for them to resume all at once. And also upstream suppliers ideally need to resume production at the same time that I'm sort of downstream or earlier than downstream uh, manufacturers uh, have sort of turned on the volume. And so this isn't as if you can just turn on a switch and it all of a sudden just works. It takes a while for these supply chains to sort of heal and sort of produce. And that could take a while before we see what we consider sort of a normalization of the economy. So how many, I mean, how many conversations are you privy to where, where people are, are talking about onshoring or nearshoring? I would imagine that this is uh, one of the top conversations now. It's, it's odd to go from a world where everything was just in time and super tight to a world where everybody's trying to contemplate, well, how do we get a robust and resilient supply chain? And, and it's also odd to me that it's still going on. I mean, it shouldn't be shocking. These aren't things you can just turn on a switch. But, you know, how long can this problem go on? I would imagine a while, huh? I mean, the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party is committed to its zero tolerance policy. And I think different than the United States is you can have politicians that are committed. So just take Donald Trump, which is probably the most, you know, whether you voted for him and you supported him, he's, he's certainly someone who's of all of the presidents we've had in the last 300 years is the most stubborn president. That's why people loved yeah. him, but they also hated him for the same reasons. And oftentimes, you know, people loved him, loved his stubbornness, and people that hated him hated him for being stubborn. The reality is he's the most stubborn president that we've probably seen in our life, you know, certainly in our lifetimes and maybe in history. I, I don't know. But you take that and, you know, there is a lot of sort of limitations of power that an American president has. You know, our system has checks and balances. We have congressional, we have, and we also have the opportunity to vote. So public opinion really matters in the United States. China, not so much. It's it's an autocratic regime in many ways could be compared to a dictatorship in the sense that you have an elected, semi, we'll call it elected by the Communist Party, an appointed premier, which is uh, a premier Xi and Basically, she runs it as almost the dictatorship is very autocratic in the amount of power that he has inside the Chinese system. And so if she, who has argued that, you know, for years and the Chinese government has argued for years that their COVID zero tolerance policy was superior to the West, you know, there was this whole sort of sense in China that they had sort of defeated the West through the, the virus, that their approach to really zero tolerance was superior to the American system or the Western system, is that we allowed all of these people to die. We allowed our people to be sick. And it's because we were not disciplined. We were not, um, we didn't care about, you know, the people around us and their sort of stance on COVID was far more superior. And they've had a draconian zero tolerance approach for really the entire, since they first identified the virus. We adopted parts of that in the early parts of the virus because we thought we didn't know the impact and this was unprecedented territory. But American political systems are built to sort of respond to public opinion. American political systems are, are built to mitigate the amount of power that one individual or one groups of individuals have. have. And because of that, China can stay committed to this policy far longer than any Western elected uh, official would. And you think about what 
what for many Americans was sort of disturbing about Donald Trump was that he didn't seem to care. He was very stubborn. And like I said, many people loved him for that. Many people hate him for that. The reality is she doesn't have to worry about Chinese public opinion. He has to worry about Chinese public control. And the best thing about the COVID lockdowns for China is that it actually mitigates the amount of information, the amount of crowd gathering that you get when you have times of significant distress. And so in some ways, if you go back through history, it's not the point where where there's a lot of distress that causes sort of revolutions. It's right after there's sort of this relief rally where people have sort of built up this anger and frustration and stress that they end up sort of imploding. Go back to the French Revolution. That was actually after the hunger, there was a significant amount of hunger in France, and then it sort of resolved itself and the economy was on the upswing. That's when you sort of saw people were emboldened to sort of take to the streets and, and protest and sort of overthrow the government. That is a much da- more dangerous time for the Chinese government is after they sort of let this go, not currently. So the longer they stay locked down, frankly, the more control they can have over their own people. And they're using COVID as a way of sort of forcing compliance to stay in your homes and and not organize. And so there's this, a lot of sort of geopolitical watchers are watching this and saying, you know, this could go on a lot longer than it would be tolerated in the West. Yeah, that is going to cause some real issues for the foreseeable future for everyone involved. I mean, the unfortunate reality is that if 40% of GDP is locked down in China, that that GDP is directly tied into manufacturing production yeah. and supply chains. And because it is it is so significant in terms of the world's manufacturing centers and world manufacturing supply, is that it will have a lot of cascading downline effects of production in every part of the world. China is just so important in terms of manufacturing and supply chains that the rest of the world depends on it. And so you think of what happens in Taiwan, whether we're producing finished goods and electronics, depends on you know a lot of the casing and cases, the low-end sort of plastic components that go into things like cameras or into TVs. A lot of that's made in China and then shipped to Taiwan where they sort of put in the semiconductors or shipped to Malaysia, where they sort of assemble these items. A lot of the components that you see throughout supply chains, regardless of where they actually originate uh, or, or where they're actually finished, a lot of the components come from China. So some of the production that we see isn't low-end clothing or low-end shoes. A lot of it's raw material components that go into the finished products that may be shipped to the United States for yeah. final assembly or maybe shipped to Mexico for final assembly or Vietnam or India. Uh, and that's those items are being disrupted as they flow. And therefore, you could see cascading supply chain effects across the rest of the world that we're not even accounting for and largely don't even yeah. have visibility about because it's an opaque issue. and We just don't get really good data from China. The only thing we can sort of look at is what is being shipped out in terms of volume of, of cargo out of China and then sort of draw some historical sort of reference to what that could mean and a lot of channel checks on what that could mean. I uh, I think the an interesting aspect of, of what you're describing is I perceive China to usually be a long thinking society, but I got to think companies are thinking long and hard about how to diversify their risk as fast as humanly possible right now. You know, if I'm a Western, an American manufacturer of 
or an American wholesaler or retailer or whatever, and I'm looking at, okay, what am I going to do when this disruption happens and I don't have inventory? And you can go back. You don't have to go very far in history. You go back to last year in 2021, and you saw a, a big delta, a big difference between companies that had inventory and companies that didn't have inventory and how they performed. So every company faced it, faced inflationary issues. But the companies that did really well last year were the companies that had inventory when consumers wanted to, to buy it. The companies that struggled yeah. were the ones that didn't. So if I'm running a supply chain, if I'm running a production plant or I'm running a retailer, I want to know what is the resiliency of the suppliers that I depend on. It's not so much yeah, to know sure. the resiliency of just them, but it's also the downline or upstream components that go into those products that matter. And so I think as an American supply chain professional, if I run a if I run a distribution system or even run a factory, I'm going to look at every single one of my suppliers and understand what is the risks that I am now accepting by using those suppliers. And if the price delta, if the price between one supplier and another is not very vast, and let's say we compare Mexico versus China, the cost isn't just in the components themselves, but it's also the labor cost in Mexico is now as competitive as, as China in terms of a per hour basis for assembly and, and production. It's the transportation cost while moving products on container ships from China to the United States is very expensive relative to land transportation. Mexico happens to be in the center of the United States. I don't have to transport it from the coasts into the, you know, from the West Coast to the East Coast, which actually cuts down a lot of the cost associated with movement. And so when you start to think about that, and most importantly, I know that that production plant can provide my on-demand need when I need it and is a lot less prone to sort of this autocratic government that can disrupt things, I start to look at Mexico far more favorably or even domestic U.S. production far more favorably than I would have otherwise done it. And so a lot of people will bring up tariffs and said this was sort of predicted during Donald Trump's trade wars. And there's some truth to that. You know, a lot of people predicted that this was sort of forced back. Certainly Donald Trump wanted to force manufacturers back to the United States, you know, America first. The reality is that didn't happen. And the reason that we didn't see that happen is it was a cost, it was a tax. So we put 10% tariffs and then 25% tariffs. And everyone assumed, okay, that will force the price deltas between Chinese goods and American goods start to narrow. And at some point that will force American businesses to sort of think differently about China production. It didn't really happen. And the reason it didn't happen is it was a cost, it was a tax. American businesses largely could pass on those costs deltas or increases to American consumers, and we were happy to pick it up. The difference now is this is a supply chain problem and there are supply chain disruptions. And those disruptions will impact the flow of cargo. And we impact the flow of cargo and the impact the flow of businesses' ability to get their hands on product, then the calculation is incredibly different. Because if we're talking about raw materials, it's if you don't have the raw materials that go into the finished goods, you can't produce a single thing that is involved in that item if you can't find alternatives. And so it can shut down your entire production plant if I, I'm producing a finished good. If you're talking about retailers, then it's, hey, I need inventory and I need my store shelves full. And if I'm selling, say, fast casual clothing for people to wear around their homes or go out 
you know, just to hang out at the at the soccer field on the weekends, then I am concerned about price because there's a, a finite price that I'm willing to take. But I may look at places like Vietnam, Bangladesh, where Pakistan, where I can I can find equivalent suppliers as alternatives who are able to provide those goods to me. And so I think what we're seeing is China is a risk that is not currently factored in to a lot of companies' understanding of the future. And I think what we've seen is, is I think a lot of Western sort of think tanks and geopolitical strategists and economists assumed, and rightfully so for many years, that as a China ascended and was sort of dependent upon the Western economies and Western consumers for product demand, that they would largely open up their markets and largely mitigate the rule of law would sort of win out. And they would always respond to economic cycles and economic demand is sort of first. And they did that for 20 some odd years, maybe even 30 years for the first to go back to 1980 to really the last sort of 30 years is largely China continued to operate under Western systems. But in the past four to five years, as China has assented, they're starting to violate those norms that we sort of understood in the West and we sort of accept it. And that behavior becomes far less predictable than what we would expect. And so as China becomes richer and more powerful, it's becoming far less westernized in its thinking and far less democratic in its thinking and far less economically exposed to Western sort of cycles and far more about itself. That is a much more dangerous uh, sort of outcome than what most Western thinkers thought would have happened. Mostly what we thought, I think largely what most people thought, including myself, is as China assented and its economy came intertwined with the West, is that it would largely sort of adopt Western norms. But in the last couple of years, it's been the opposite. We've actually seen it sort of retract and sort of become far more insular and far more about itself than than what it what it had been over the last you know, a couple of decades. It's going to be interesting to see how they respond to companies nearshore. I mean, if it is true that companies nearshore supply chains, it's going to be interesting to see how China responds to that because that's going to hit them directly economically, right? And that's... Uh, I think what will end up happening is the manufacturers that produce goods that have high margins, that having inventory in stock and or not having inventory in stock is far more impactful to my business than the cost of my goods sold. So think about those products that matter. It's electronics, so things that are relatively high margin, semiconductor chips. You know, it's electronics that are really, really important for the running of a lot of businesses. And the margins of those things are pretty expansive. It's pharmaceuticals. You know, China is the world's largest pharmaceutical manufacturer by by you know, multiples over anywhere else. But the margins on those items is pretty, pretty expansive. And so I think what we'll see is that those companies will start to say, hey, I can afford to sort of produce these items in the United States, or I can afford to produce them in Mexico. Puerto Rico is a great example of that. Because the risk of not having these items is far more impactful than the cost of producing them. So maybe it costs me 20 or 30% more to produce them at home, but at least I'm not running out of them. And so I think what we'll see is those, those items that tend to have higher margin will leave China far faster than those items that are so low in general commodities that you see in, in sort of discount retail. Those items are probably 
going to be less prone to leave. There will always be a manufacturing base in China. You can't reverse that. But I think that we will see a movement towards companies thinking differently about how they run their supply chains and, frankly, holding a lot more inventory than they have in the past just to absorb some of these shocks. That's really interesting. Uh, so so what was it like when uh, when you released a report and all of a sudden uh, you see J.B. Hunt's stock go way down? Uh, I mean, that, that was wild. <laughs> it's a little disconcerting. Like, so we write reports a lot. You know, we've made calls throughout history since we've, you know, been uh, past five years have been around. So, you know, usually there's, you know, no major market impact to, to these stories. I think it was a little shocked on how fast the financial markets re- sort of responded to our freight recession as imminent uh, article. And, you know, I think I woke up the next day and something like the transport. Yeah, that was wild. <laughs> And then over the course of a month, I think they were down 18 to 20%. It was a little, a little shocking. And frankly, I'm, I was pretty uncomfortable with the fact that that happened because, you know, what we were talking about is the fundamentals of the broader market of really a lot of small and independent trucking companies and freight carriers. They're not really talking about sort of this, what we call enterprise class carriers and the impact of them. They're largely insulated from some of these developments. They, they have impacts and it will impact them, but they're, they still don't have the sort of boom and bust cycle that a lot of the small carriers do. And that's really what we were referring to is, is what it means for really small trucking companies. The reality is that I think Wall Street was already, you know, these one article is not going to set off an entire trading unless there's already a belief or a bias to look for data that sort of trims it off. And I think what we saw was it was just the right sort of tipping point where largely Wall Street had assumed that, you know, the U.S. economy was sort of stretched, that whether we have Fed tightening, the cost of fuel, you know, retail consumption is is starting to change. I think Wall Street largely bought into the thesis that, the market for freight is largely the climate is changing towards a risk-off environment versus risk-on. I mean, for for two years, the transports have done exceptionally well. And I think really what has happened is that you look at what happened in Russia with the Russia-Ukraine war and what that happened to fuel prices. You looked at the Federal Reserve starting to really, really increase interest rates. You see mortgage rates go up. You start to wonder it, and then you see consumers starting to go out and sort of live their lives, not consuming physical goods, but consuming experiences. And at some point, you start to say, this is not good generally for the transports and not good for people that are in logistics. Because if you're not moving a lot of products through the economy or as many products through the economy, it means that there won't be as much opportunity for those companies in the future as there is in the past. And so, you know, Wall Street is typically a six to 12 month sort of view of the overall sector. And I think that's what caused those to sell off. We just happened, I just happened to be the sort of tripping, uh, hit the tripwire that caused that cascading. Um, But it's a little, it is, it is certainly a little intimidating and a little bit like, (laughs) Oh my God, what did I do? It's sort of like as a kid, you sort of, you know, you go over and you're like, you touch something yeah. and everything crashes out from under you. Like, it's just like that. I remember I was once traveling on a business trip and I was in a hotel and I went in the shower and I simply just 
very gently because I'm in the morning. I don't have a lot of energy. And I sort of gently closed the shower falls. door and the entire <laughs> pane crashed. It exploded, which I didn't even know was possible. But apparently tempered glass is very fragile. It's naturally fragile. It's supposed to be fragile. But apparently over time, the the sill inside the tempered glass can, can sort of deteriorate. And apparently glass doors can explode. Didn't even know that. But I, I, I gently close this glass door and all of a sudden the glass door explodes and all this glass sort of like shatters me almost like a bomb. And it ended up cutting my hand. And it's very similar to that. It's like that article sort of tripped off this cascading effect of all of these sort of elements. The shower door, I didn't do anything to cause it. I just happened to be yeah. right place, right time and sort of like, uh, like pulled on the door enough to cause it. That's exactly what happened, I think, with the article. And I, I think generally what we're seeing is that the market continues to be, you know, a lot of headwinds for carriers, a lot of headwinds for transportation companies. And I think generally our thesis is still correct in the sense that the market is decelerating. The spot rates continue to fall. Freight volumes continue to be challenged. And I think the thesis that we had is still intact. Now, when you're writing for, uh, I mean, your cover, that article, I thought what was interesting is like you even came out and you were like, I don't know why J.B. Hunt moved this much on my article. Like they're largely insulated. Yeah, I don't. I mean, and and even all of the trucking companies, some of them are more exposed to the spot market than others, but certainly J.B. Hunt. I mean, J.B. Hunt is sort of the dollar general, their intermodal business, which is the railroad putting a truck onto, uh, you know, and taking a container and putting it from truck to rail. J.B. Hunt is largely viewed by people in transport, not as a trucking company. Now, you ask someone on the street if J.B. Hunt's a trucking company, they say yes. They participate in trucking, and they're a very significant player in the overall what we call surface freight market, which is moving freight over land. But as an over-the-road for-hire trucking company, they're largely not a participant in that part of the market. And that's better for their shareholders because they don't have what we call commoditized spot freight exposure, except in their logistics operations and brokerage operations. They're largely insulated in many ways, sort of like Dollar General is in retail, is when the economy is doing really tough, Dollar General does exceptionally well because people start to value lower-cost products and are not necessarily going for the most premium product in the shelves. They're shopping less at Target and more at Dollar General when the economy is sort of – they still need the cleaning supplies and they still need their milk or their food. So they'll go to Dollar General. They won't go into Target. And what we would say is J.B. Hunt sort of fits that model as well. When the market softens and freight demand sort of slowly moves away – J.B. Hunt actually does better in that environment because their intermodal rail operations tend to be lower cost than, say, truckload. Also, when times aren't as important, moving on rail is actually an advantage, not a disadvantage. It's a feature, not a bug, because it means I don't have to keep product in my warehouses. And so when J.B. Hunt sold off as much as it did, it was really sort of surprising just because fundamentally it didn't make sense. I think what happened is that the entire sector sold off. And like I said, I don't think this is just our article I guess we we get credit for being the cascading effect, but but the reality is that it the market was already looking for reasons to sell the transports, and this just happened to trigger the right algorithms to do it. Yeah, what is how does uh, Old Dominion fit in this? Like, are they impacted by uh, the the soft freight market? I would think so. I mean, Old Dominion is a well-ran LTL carrier. 
And being a well-ran LTL carrier, it means you, and LTL operates different than truckload. You know, truckload is, is tends to be a highly commoditized market where there's no barriers to entry. Anybody can go buy a truck that can get financing and become a trucking company tomorrow. It, you know, the time to do that, assuming you have a CDL is measured in day, like a day to sort of like, literally, if you had a CDL, you could go buy a truck. And you could be operating tomorrow. Like there is no time delta or gap between the time that it takes to ramp up. And so truckload tends to be far more uh, cyclical and far more responsive to these sort of demand cycles is what LTL does. LTL requires terminal networks. They tend to move smaller shipments. They're marrying up a lot of small shipments into a network. And so LTL is a market that is in many ways, much like rail intermodal is, it's somewhat insulated and somewhat advantaged when freight sort of slows down because you're not moving full truckloads, maybe you're moving a pallet or two. And so LTL will do better at this part of the cycle than what general commoditized truckload will um, just because of the way that the nature of how it works. That makes sense. It's so fascinating, man. I love thinking about the way that stuff gets to us. I don't care if it's your internet. I don't care if it's the goods. Like I just think that the world around us is so fascinating. It's, it is far more complicated than what I think most people sort of think about or even care to think about. I mean, you think about, I always use the description of a supply chain as much like your, your electric power company or utility is like, you don't think about your power company. Like think about the last time you, you thought about your power company. Yeah, I'd never, I just expect the lights to go on. <laughs> but the last time you really probably thought about your power company, like obsessed with yeah, that's right. was when the lights weren't on. And I bet... If the power was out, you were you were checking every like five minutes on the power company's website to see yeah. what the status of your power is because like we just can't face it. Or your internet company, when your internet's down, you're like, what is going right. on? How long is this gonna take? Like we we are so like engineered to sort of expect it. Supply chains operate the same way. So nobody thinks about how those products move from China into the United States until after those products aren't here. And frankly, if you talk to most people on the street about China today, and I'm talking about in the, like in the last week, very few people that are outside of the Twitter sphere that I operate in uh, are thinking or even looking at China as a risk. They're like, oh, I thought that yeah. was all over. I thought COVID was all over with. Haven't we all agreed to sort of move on? And so the reality is that most people aren't thinking about these things, don't even care. And they won't care until they walk into the grocery store and they don't see items that they would expect or go onto a website and those items don't show yeah. up. That's when they'll start caring. We're not there yet. And so, as you mentioned, like people largely ignore supply chains until they don't work. And I always say, if I'm in the news a lot, it's because things are yeah, really not sense. good. Um, and so the more you see me, the, the worse tends to be because people really don't want to talk supply chain. It's a pretty boring topic for most people unless – something's not operating the way you would expect it to. So how'd you get into the business and writing and whatnot? Yeah, I grew up. So my dad started uh, what's the fifth largest trucking company in the United States called US Express. And my uncle started the eighth largest trucking company, a company called Covenant. So you could say I'm yeah, big it's trucking, in your blood, right? So like it was big oil, big trucking. And um, so I've been around it. I learned the sort of in and outs of the business. And, you know, we built, Freight waves five years ago because there wasn't really an information source that was sort of real time. A lot of the media outlets that were operating the space were writing stuff that would take place, you know, write it either on a weekly cadence or monthly cadence or quarterly cadence. And so 
these developments happened so quickly and there was sort of this information gap. You could find social media blogs or groups where people be blogging about this stuff, but nobody was talking about this stuff from a sort of editorial data-centric uh, uh, model. And we went out and created Freightways for that. I mean, it's an industry that I love. I think you have to love it to sort of do it because it's a complicated industry and you have to sort of understand how the stuff is constructed because from the outside, it looks very like a spaghetti, like all this stuff is sort of intertangled or, or you know, there's rubber band balls. Yeah. People get it's all like how does this so you pull on one thing and it sort of tightens up on another. That's it's a lot like freight, is that it's this really weird mess of spaghetti that's all interconnected and and so you have to sort of understand how that stuff is sort of built uh in order to sort of be able to characterize what's happening to describe it. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh it's an interesting niche. So who's your typical subscriber? So from a reader standpoint, it's everybody from a reader. I mean, we, we would say that about half, 40% of our traffic is from the industry. So these are people that are in supply chain or either, you know, driving trucks, running warehouses, making decisions at a C-level sort of C-suite. Uh, and then it's like 60% of the traffic is what we would call guests or sort of Myself. tourists. There. Yeah. Like, you know, like yourself or someone that's listening to this podcast is like, oh, why is the Suez Canal – why is this container ship a big deal in the Suez Canal? Or what? why is what's happened in China impacting my ability to get my hand on my favorite chocolate candy or or whatever, or some box or some you know new PlayStation that's out? So those are sort of tourists that come for one or don't visit on a regular basis, um, which, and, and we sort of profile them are not from the industry, but maybe they're just intellectually curious about a topic or intellectually have become interested in supply chain because yeah. it's just a fascinating topic. In terms of the data customers, these are large decision makers or large companies that are moving a large amount of freight throughout the economy. So it's the big box retailers, it's the e-commerce companies, it's the big trucking companies that really are consuming our data. Our data is not built, frankly, for really small trucking companies. It certainly can serve that, but it's a it's like having an automatic weapon for a knife fight or like a fist fight. Like it's way, it's too, it's frankly very robust compared to what the general sort of truck trucking operator would need or want. And so we build our data sets for the really the largest decision makers and largest organizations in the space that are concerned about real-time pricing, concerned about real-time supply and demand, concerned about these sort of macro developments where you know, an individual trucking company, an individual truck driver is impacted by what happens around them, but they have very little sort of control over those outcomes. They're sort of subject to the market conditions. Whereas if you're running a supply chain at a, e at a major e-commerce company or a major consumer product company or a major trucking company, what happens in the macro environment, you have a lot of power to sort of mitigate that impact to you. And so it's really important that you understand from a data standpoint, what is actually happening, but also from a contextual standpoint, what is happening. So when we're talking about the market, we're talking about this sort of macro view. And it's interesting reading Facebook comments from people that, you know, that read our stuff that are, you know, they'll take, hey, I was out in LA and there was a lot of containers out there. It's there's no like slowdown in freight. You're like, <laughs> okay. Or like there's so many trucks on the road at the fuel island. This is not a freight recession. And it's because in their own experience, things are fine. And so they don't 
they don't have context of what happens across the market and and oftentimes shouldn't even care. So a lot of this stuff becomes distracting to them in the background. But if you're if you're running a global supply chain for a major e-commerce company or, or a big trucking company, you do care about those things because that in, has an impact to your business. Yeah. Well, like you said, if something's got a four week lead time and I'm telling you, well, I was just in L.A., I just haven't seen it yet. That's right. So if you're you know, if you're sitting in a grocery store in Chicago or Dallas or Chattanooga, Tennessee, and you go in the grocery store and you're hearing about all this stuff in China, it just feels like ugh, this is just the media making something up and no big deal. And maybe you're not even paying attention. What will happen, though, was after you go into the grocery store, say, or go into your back to school supply store in August and you're like, why are, is there no paper and pens or backpacks available for my children that I normally get? They were there last year. I don't understand why they're not here this year. And you walk in for back to school, then you, you start to ask well, what's happened. And you have to go back through months of history to sort of backtrack that. Those are the, what I would call the tourists that are just intellectually curious about understanding what are all what all happened to bring me here? And so we have a sort of a historical archive of all those elements that happened in near real time. And you can sort of characterize uh, that in terms of, you know, wh where we've been. Yeah. Interesting. So are we going to create another toilet paper run with this episode, do you think? Or uh, we'll see. <laughs> hey, you know, a lot of toilet papers produced domestically. I, I wouldn't sweat. Uh, the toilet paper crisis. Look, I think generally as a consumer, you should be thinking about having some buffer of any item that is critical. Toilet paper, just like <laughs> toilet paper yeah. crisis of 2020 <laughs> is sort of like the most ridiculous crisis in American history because it's an item that nobody thinks about and nobody really in, like thinks, oh, I have to stock up on toilet paper. It's ridiculous yeah. that we ran out of toilet paper for, from a, sort of a, a laughable consumer standpoint. But the reality is that that was a shift from, you know, a lot of people were consuming toilet paper at the office yeah, and had shifted house. to sort of, sort, of the, the sort of home lifestyle and just the consumption pattern shifted and the supply chain took a while to catch up. I would not sweat toilet paper, but if I'm thinking about back to school supplies or thinking about what happens in China now, I would be thinking about, does it make sense to go ahead and buy those supplies now? And I may be wrong. Like we, you know, we, we talked about stuff that happened in Q3 in August and September and October and warned about some of the supply chain shortages may happen for Christmas. I think largely consumers were sort of generally okay. Uh, you may have not gotten your favorite color or your favorite item or your favorite sort of technology, but you largely were okay. No one yeah. went without during Christmas. Nobody got coal. Um, although if you got coal, you'd probably be, it'd be worth a lot of money. So that might've been a really good present this past year. I'll tell you who got hurt though. Those retailers that the retailers that do um, like overstock stuff. I mean, if if you uh, if you listen to Nordstrom Rack or uh, I follow QVC, like they have that uh, company Zulily, they had a lot of problems getting product. So, like on the margin, it definitely hit. Well, a lot of it was just because the you know they're sort of secondhand liquidation services where they're essentially liquidating inventory that other retailers was out of season, you know, they ordered too much and didn't sell enough. They were in short supply in, in Q4 
in, you know, in the holidays, just because it wasn't in the inventory of, you know, every retailer was sort of holding on, not knowing what was there. But I think those are actually really good stock plays now because we do have record inventories and we are in a situation where a lot of those retailers are going to be liquidating those items. And many of those items that came in in January, February, and March were ordered for Christmas and peak season that are largely sort of not being consumed now. So you may find that those discount retailers are actually a really solid play if you assume that consumers are looking for deals in an inflationary environment where prices go up and inventories for those secondhand stores may be available, at least for a period of time. Now, anybody can bet what happens in Q3 or Q4. It's it's really hard to know. You know, We believe that freight demand will slow due to the China uh, uh, slowdown. But it's again, we're just making a calculated guess based on history. How much of uh, the the trucking industry? I mean, you said there's zero barrier to entry, right? I can go get my CDL and grab a truck. How many guys kind of come in when it's tight and then leave when it's it's like this? Like, how much would you expect kind of labor supply to maybe go up as a result of guys saying, you know what, fuck, I got into trucking too late, and now I'm getting out. So we know that there's 170,000 new trucks and, and drivers, we call it dispatchable capacity, that have entered the market over the past really two years. So it's the largest number of new trucking companies have, have joined the freight market, as well as the largest amount of trucking for higher capacity in history has joined the freight market. And so when we think about the amount of demand just in terms of freight, that's really encouraged the sort of expansion cycle of a lot of new entrants. And, you know, a lot of people come back and say, well, I hear about this driver shortage. Why is there a, you know, why are so many trucks coming in if there's a driver shortage? And what they're largely referring to is the employee drivers. So there's really two types of capacity. We're going to forget the railroads for a minute, but let's talk about sort of the way the trucking market works is, you sort of have the fleets which hire drivers, and those drivers are employees of the trucking company. And they don't have a lot of autonomy. They're, they don't own the truck. They don't have the risks associated with being uh, an owner of a trucking company. But they also lose a lot of the autonomy that they would have otherwise. What happens is when the rates are so high, particularly spot rates, is a lot of those employee drivers leave fleets and go buy a truck and become a trucking company themselves. So now – they're operating as an independent contractor inside the market. And what ends up happening is they leave the trucking company they work for. That trucking company then has to go hire another driver to take the seat, if you will, of that other trucking company. So we've gone from driver works for a trucking company, goes and becomes an owner-operator. We're, we've not added a driver. We've added yep. a truck in terms of total like uh, truck, but we're net – we're, we're minus one in terms of capacity or, or we're flat because the trucking company that had the employee driver is down a driver, but there's a new, a new driver, a new fleet in the market. Well, that trucking company immediately is yeah. going to re- try to replace that driver. And so they will put that driver through driving school and they'll get them certified and that driver then joins the fleet. So we're now we've gained a driver both the employee driver has now been replaced as well as the dispatchable owner operator has been replaced. And so what you see when freight demand is high, those drivers that are working for a trucking company look at these spot rates. They go to the truck stop and they hear the guy making 
I'm making $300,000 a year and you're driving for, you know, JB Hunt or you're driving for that company and you're making 50,000, 60,000, 80,000, whatever they're saying. And what what happens is that that driver says, "Hey, I can make a lot more money being an owner operator." And so he leaves the trucking company he worked for and became an owner operator for the market. Now the trucking company has to replace that driver. And so the cycle goes on yeah. as long as spot rates are high. And so what they'll do is they'll enter the spot market as a dispatchable unit and the trucking company still has to replace that driver because they want to stay, they want to keep their fleet fully staffed. And they also may look at the market and say, hey, the freight conditions are really good. Let's expand. And so they also expand their fleet. So not only do they have to replace the drivers they're losing, but they also are bringing new drivers into the market. Well, that yep. creates a capacity expansion. Here's what happens every single cycle is – Capacity will eventually match demand, which we probably are at that level now where capacity is matching demand. And largely for the market, most people think it's fine because it's enough freight for everybody. But what happens is that expansion continues to take place because just inertia is there and yeah. spot rates are still high. And as long as spot rates are still high, and they are still high versus historical norms, new entrants will enter the market. The big trucking companies will continue to add yep. drivers to their fleet at the same time. And so what ends up happening is anytime freight volumes start to really come down, which we've seen, then the market just starts to flood with too much capacity. And then we end up in a situation where we see a lot of bankruptcies that take place. We're in the very early innings of that cycle. Now, why we could be wrong is if we don't see expansion of fleets. We're seeing it happen. We've seen 100,000, 170,000 new trucks. We've seen the trucking fleets respond to that by adding drivers and expanding their fleets because they are expanding. And we're seeing a slowdown in the U.S. freight demand happen at the same time that there's expansion yeah. of fleet. So what happens is eventually you overcorrect and you have too much capacity chasing too many, too few loads. And that what's called, we would call that a bloodbath where a lot of small trucking companies lose, you know, lose opportunity. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And that's, that's what we've said. And that's essentially what we predict is going to happen uh, over the next couple of quarters. And I presume that guy uh, or girl or gal or whatever that uh, is, is just entering the market probably has, uh, probably has some debt on their rig uh to buy it right and a lot not quite the staying power well they bought it remember they bought it so if you go back to 2019 and you look at the cost of a say a three-year-old truck is the cost of a three-year-old truck was something like sixty thousand dollars so you could have bought a, a three-year-old truck decent you know good good to decent shape for about sixty thousand dollars that same truck would go for about one hundred forty thousand dollars today so so, and then we have interest rates too, is that interest rates to finance the trucks, you know, these are typically small, small uh, trucking companies that may or may not be, have su su sufficient credit. So they may be financed at relatively high rates. So those rates have been creeping up, or I shouldn't say creeping up, they've been really climbing up quickly. And then you have fuel price, fuel headwinds that are also taking place. And so all of these things are sort of happening at once. Seen the price of fuel double, really since uh, March. Uh, you know, when we saw Putin attack Ukraine, the price of fuel basically doubled uh, at the you know from from really February twenty fourth, I think, on. 
And that has stayed persistently high. We've not seen it come down. So the price of fuel has doubled, which is the number one variable cost for a trucking company. We've seen headwinds related to a cost of capital. We've seen headwinds in terms of uh, declining freight rates and sort of diminishing demand. And while n- there's not one thing that will knock a truck the company confluence out, of events will over time, the cash flow of those trucking companies starts to really evaporate. And that's when you start to see a substantial amount of bankruptcies that, that cause a lot of really challenging conditions for trucking companies. Yeah. Interesting. Man, it's it's wild. Uh, it, trucks, stocks, houses, it's all the same stuff. It's all the same behavior. It's all supply. I mean, look, supply and demand is the, the most, like, economics 101, and anyone would be well-served to understand supply and demand. It's funny because, you know, a lot of times consumers, we see politicians do it. I like to believe the politicians that talk about exploitation and price fixing and profit taking and profit engineering and monopolistic prices are not dumb enough to believe that that they don't believe in supply and demand. I mean, they say these things, I think, because it's politically popular, but surely, surely the people, you know, take Elizabeth Warren as an example. She's a Harvard, you know, professor. I'd like to believe she's not dumb enough to actually believes the nonsense that comes out of her mouth in the sense that like, like all of these oil companies and companies are just exploiting the poor people and sort of profit engineering. Uh, I like to believe that she understands supply and demand, but I don't know that she does. The reality is that supply and demand matters. It matters in trucking. It matters in oil. It matters in every single economy across the planet. And ultimately supply and demand wins out. And so when we look at trucking, because there are no barriers to entry, it is a very cyclical market and is very prone to boom and bust cycles, very much like oil is. And so we think about the trucking market, you try to think about the fracking or the shell companies in the United States are very similar to the trucking companies or these owner operators. It's typically the shell companies tend to be smaller operators. They can can sort of come online really quickly and come offline when 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 the market goes south. And they sort of are that swing producer in the oil markets. They also tend to go bust a lot faster than you know these big major oil companies do. And the trucking market works the very same way. Is the owner operators, these independent carriers, are very much like the fracking operators and the shell operators, where their cost to their variable cost is much higher than the broader market. But as long as the rates are high enough, they can come yeah. into the market and make a lot of money. The problem is that what they end up doing is oversupplying the market, and it ends up basically they lose a lot of the, the pricing power that they have. And the difference between oil and trucking is that they're, you know, oil, the thing with the oil markets is there's a lot of like upfront significant investment and in, in putting up an oil rig. There's also a lot of environmental and just ge- geographical or geological constraints to do an oil. Like I can't put an oil rig in, on my property in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Because- yeah, no doubt. They're super hard to scale up. <laughs> yeah, like there's no oil here from what I can. I'm sure that like there's some like, microcosm of oil, but like there's no way I can make money on oil. It's probably like $7,000 or something to, to drill for oil. So the reality is that when you think about small trucking companies, it operates a lot like that where their cost is much higher 
but they don't have the barriers of entry. They don't have geographical constraints or geopolitical constraints or environmental constraints. Yeah. They can come in and out of the market as they see as they see fit. The problem is once they join the market, they're sort of stuck. Uh, and because they can't rotate out of their truck quickly if they're sort of have a bunch of debt. And so what will happen is as the used truck prices start to collapse, which they inevitably will, then they will sort of be stuck trying to sort of fend that off. And that's the most dangerous part of the cycle. Yeah. So does somebody like JB Hunt on that side of the cycle get stronger or do, do they just kind of not even play around on that side? I mean, Hunt is going to do really well in any cycle. They have the most diverse in terms of revenue streams of any company, they play in the the low end part of the market or the cheaper part of the market, which is the intermodal market, play in the high end market, yeah. play in the brokerage market with, so high end would be last mile, furniture delivery, things like that. The sort of mid market is that freight brokerage uh, marketplace they call JB Hunt 360. And brokers expand their margins when freight, when spot rates do this and contract rates stay high. So they actually are an amazingly well-positioned company in any cycle, but actually will come out stronger because what will happen is a lot of these independent carriers will go under and they'll turn out of the market and JB Hunt with a robust balance sheet will do exceptionally well. And a lot of the large truck companies actually do better once we get through the, the cycle because they a lot of that excess capacity has been churned and they will have gained pricing power. And one thing that's not really been talked about is the supply chain disruptions of the past two years have really challenged a lot of supply chain professionals. And these big trucking companies are able to respond with trailer pools and equipment where a small independent operator yep. has not been able to or would not be able to. So I think we'll see where the big trucking companies don't have as much exposure to the cycle as sort of the small players because – if you're running a supply chain at Procter & Gamble or Unilever or Nestle, you're a lot less concerned about taking freight from, say, a J.B. Hunt or a Knight Swift because you want to keep all of that capacity there. The last thing you want to deal with is a big headache of having to replace a lot of trucks. You're going to end up picking off the really small players in your in what we call routing guide first and not touch the bigger players. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. It's uh, it's one of those strong get stronger things through the tough times. That's exactly it, and it's still like it's still a robust market relative to where it was two years ago. But we largely believe that 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 froth is coming off, and there's just so many headwinds that are ahead for the industry that it's going to make it you know difficult for them to navigate. Yeah, the thing I find really hard about this period is is like what you just said. It's still a robust period relative to where it was in 2019, right? So it's like the the rate of change in many different industries. Really, anything touching the home or durables that people have been buying like crazy for two years is clearly going down. But like it was at such an inflated level so that I have a really hard time in my head contextualizing. What does going lower mean relative to where we were generally? And are we going to overshoot to the downside like we normally do? Or I don't know. It's just very hard to figure out. I mean, there's an argument to be made, right? Like if you think about just your own over the past two years, let's take, take so I was talking to a large, uh, they make skillets and they're one of the largest skillet manufacturers in the country. And the CEO, it was a mayor's roundtable. The CEO got up and spoke about sort of business updates. And he said, he goes, hey, I want you to know that for the past eight weeks, we've seen significant slowdown in volume. 
And he said this in front of a room of all the CEOs. And it was sort of the timing of what he was talking about matched what we saw in freight demand. And it, it strikes me as skillets make absolute sense. And, and they would be seeing the same developments. As if you think about a skillet, is we only, as consumers, need so many skillets. We bought a house. Maybe we upgrade our kitchen. And maybe we've gone and upgraded our skillets, right? Like we... How often, you know, I was single once, I was married and then single and then and then remarried. And I t you tend to, as a dude, at least for me, when I got divorced, I didn't replace any of my, like I used whatever I had in the, in the kitchen until, you know, I, I got remarried and my wife replaced yeah, no all our kitchenware because that's what you would do. We are unlikely to buy another skillet for probably 20 years, I'm guessing, right? And, and so as a consumer... You're not going to go replace those items that you've already bought. And the assumption that you would have to make about most consumer behavior is that that really for the past two years, if you had a reason to buy a skillet, yep. you would have already yeah. bought that skillet. And I think this is true of a lot of different items is we, we're talking specifically about skillets, but just think about gardening supplies. You know, a lot of people went out and bought bigger homes, but they, they you know, live sort of went in those homes and sort of moved in those homes sometime in 2021. They bought their gardening supplies then. A lot of that demand, because you're only going to buy a certain number of skillets, you're only going to buy a certain number of, uh, a certain amount of furniture out on your porch, number of basketball goals. That demand may not only overcorrect to the downside in terms of, of just diminishing demand short term, but it actually may go much further than what it was in 2019 simply because consumers that had the opportunity with disposable income largely replaced the items that they always wanted to replace during the last last two years and may not need or want to replace yeah. those items anytime yeah. soon. So we think about all those categories which consumers for the last two years have done it. It's televisions, maybe it's computers, but certainly those long-term items that we don't replace that often because they last forever – I think are the items and categories that I would expect that we will see a much larger correction than a typical correction would be for those items. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and especially, I think the marginal propensity is like the wealth effect when everything was going up, people were, were buying. Now, you know, stocks are correcting and rates are going higher. Maybe people start to think a little bit harder about what they're, where they're spending. And uh, it's going to be really interesting to watch. I mean, if you go back to a year ago, NFTs like were like this hot thing, which is just like a digital picture. Um, and, you know, it was sort of salt. We were sort of told it was this sort of new asset class. And maybe maybe there was a, a, a and I'm sure there's a market for that that will sort of come out the other side of it. But but the fact that we were seeing all of these sort of speculative buzzle, bubbles across all asset classes suggests that as consumers start to lose a lot of their purchasing power through inflation, through higher interest rates, then you start to look at really questioning how much demand is going to be there for these highly discretionary items. And I think about the fact that, you know, just in freight demand and think about all of the sort of companies that, that when someone buys a new home or they move, there is a multiplier effect yeah. on them yep. moving. So we talked about skillets and kitchenware. You move into a new house, inevitably you always buy new stuff, right? Like, or that's sort of the the, the typical behavior pattern is 
Maybe it's I'm buying new kitchenware because I now have a much bigger kitchen than I used to. And maybe it's I'm largely furniture, I think, gets replaced a lot. At least every time I've moved or known people move, yeah, they always sure. inevitably change their furniture. So they buy a new house and like, oh, that couch that I've had for 10 years is I'm throwing that thing out and giving it away to, to somebody else. And so I think what we end up seeing is as you see slowing home home sales, which, you know, home sales in March were down 8% in terms of new home sales, that will slow down a lot of the demand that would otherwise be there. And because people aren't buying new homes because of higher interest rates, it's going to just naturally slow the demand cycle in a lot of these categories. So stuff that's highly exposed to it is consumer discretionary. And then you have at the same time this sort of movement from I'm going to buy and consume physical goods, so skillets, yeah, I'm furniture, go travel. TVs, to where I'm now going to take all my money yep. and I'm going to go buy an airline ticket on Delta Airlines and I'm going to go, going to go crazy in Miami or Panama City Beach or you know, the Maldives or wherever I wanted to go, the Caribbean, because I now I'm just tired of living, staying in this house, looking at my skillets yeah. and my furniture. Like I want to go out and party. So that I think that that is also happening at the very same time, which could drag down further the consumption and physical goods. Yeah, I totally agree with that. The the only odd wrinkle is the home builders, at least DR Horton reported today, and they still see a lot of strong demand. But that kind of makes sense to me because I suspect with rates up existing house like I'm not going to sell my house if I have a 3% rate, right? So I think the new deliveries, if you believe in the housing shortage uh, idea, will probably still be okay. But who knows? I don't know. I've never lived through a... I, I believe, I mean, you believe just demographically that the housing shortage is real. And, and we're not talking... I think you have to sort of take away long-term sort of decade-long sort of trends and sort of short-term sort of quarterly long trends. Yeah, we're talking cycles and sec- and secular trends, right? Yeah, like there is a long-term secular trend towards home ownership. People are aging. The millennials are now at an age where they can go buy a home. They sort of missed out on a lot of opportunity that would have existed because of the housing crisis. They're 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 now sufficiently have a lot more capital available to them and they the home the dream of a bigger home is sort of coming back to America. Uh, and building a suburban home or being away from the cities is sort of re- sort of a renowned or renewed sort of focus on that. I think that is a trend that is going to stay with us and will mitigate some of these short-term slowdowns. But when we talk about sort of looking at data on a short-term basis, which is we do a lot of that at freight waves because these markets are very reactionary, then you do look at a lot of the short-term headwinds that exist for physical goods consumption. And I think when you look at it on a short-term basis, there is a lot of reason to be concerned. Now, you can take a step back from that. You can look at macro trends of nearshoring, of moving production back to Mexico and the United States. That's good for trucking. You can look at what's happened in Russia and the Ukraine and the destruction of the supply chain as it relates to food. That's good for American farming. You look at natural gas and energy supplies. That's good for American oil producers because over time, Nat gas and oil will come from the United States, which is a very trustworthy and dependable source of oil for Europe and that and, and that gas for Europe than say parts of the world that are less dependable or more volatile. And so, like Russia is an example. And so, because of all of that, 
these are good long-term trends for America. And if your horizon is five to 10 years, you can look at it and say, I'm very bullish on the, you know, the US economy. I'm very bullish on housing. I'm very bullish on freight and US trucking. And you can be bullish yeah. long-term and bearish short-term. And I think most of what I'm talking about in terms of what's happening is very short-term focused when we're thinking about month to month and quarter to quarter, not something we're looking at over the course of years. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So do you have a podcast or anything? I gotta think you do, man. You got a hell of an energy. You got a great voice. You got your setup behind you. I appreciate it. Yeah, so we I do something called Fuller Speed Ahead, which I used to do it on a on a much more regular basis, but now Yeah, no doubt. You're you know, busy. When you run a business, you end up <laughs> you do a lot of stuff, but yeah, but I do about three hours of live content. Uh, I mean, the Freightways does about three hours of live content a day. Um, I ended up doing a lot of just sort of TV on uh, sort of like Bloomberg and CNBC and sort of the networks because they're, you know, they're looking for sort of insights. So yeah. I do a lot more of that today than I used to. Um, but I have a podcast called Fuller Speed Ahead, which typically, you know, interviews founders and stuff. Um, so now I appreciate you saying that. Like, I'm passionate about the topic. It's an interesting time because there's all this sort of macro development and sort of reasons to be bullish. At the same time, you can be bearish. And I think you can do both. Yeah, for sure. Well, uh, you know, I, I foresee myself doing this for a while. So maybe, uh, you know, we could have a like a yearly update or something. Even when times are calm, I'd love to talk to you. I, I find this stuff fascinating. Happy to do it anytime you want. And look, the, I in a couple of months, probably yeah, we'll be talking right. about the bull run in freight because this is just how it works. And um, So people check in in a couple of months and uh, hopefully we'll have something more bullish to say about the market. Well, you know, I, I follow uh, Jay Mintzmeyer too, and he, he covers shipping. And I, I just think it's going to be a wild time to live through between the stop and go and who can make it through these periods of who's like stop I stopping cuz i i think the story that i've told myself is if if the bigger and more well capitalized people can get through this you know the back end like you said on a 3 5 10 year time horizon they should be quite a bit stronger at the end of it i don't i don't own any stocks or anything in the space but that's kind of like i've been noodling on it for a while and that's kind of Seems like fragility exposes those that are fragile, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. You know, the other thing is like when we think about what's happening around sort of these long-term developments is that favors sort yeah. of the American story, that favors the American dollar. I mean, one of the things that's sort of interesting is, is if you follow this sort of petrodollar conversation is a lot of people believe that when the United States shut off Russia or the West shut off Russia in terms of the monetary system and the payment systems, that that would largely make Russia and sort of the, it would de, the dollar would be, be at risk in terms of the world's reserve currency. But we've actually seen the opposite happen over the last two months where the dollar has gotten enormously strong because people are like the safe haven is the United States. Like, the reality is, and I don't care whether you're a pacifist or you're sort of an American nationalist and you're stronger or against military power, is that the reality is that the American military is the reason that we have enjoyed so much prosperity for the world, not just the United States, over the last 70 years. It's the, Ameri it's the strength of the American military and the strength of the American economy 
that has kept the world relatively peaceful. Now, there have been skirmishes and there have been sort of wars, and we know the war on terrorism, what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan are sort of exceptions to that. And there has certainly been sort of interregional conflict, but we haven't seen a massive sort of breakup in world conflict, largely because of America and the strength of our military, an uncontested sort of economic power. And I think what is sort of interesting about this is as China attacks its own economy and attacks its own people and looks a little irrational in how they're handling things, is that really has forced investors to say, I don't know that I want to put a lot of trust in the Chinese system. I want to move that money to where at least as crazy as America is and as crazy as the political system it is and all the problems with all the just insanity that exists inside the United States, I want to move it back there because at least I know that they will always care about the money. Is that like Wall Street gets a bad rep, but there is a reason that Wall Street is, is as important as it is, is because it is the world's financial center. Shanghai was, you know, China was trying to prop up Shanghai as an alternative to New York, and it's losing that battle uh, greatly. And one thing I, I would also point out is the stuff that I'm talking about these supply chain disruptions have always existed. There's always been wars. There's always been geopolitical events, terrorist attacks, hurricanes, economic cycles of supply and demand. The difference now is that we are sort of in this globalized world where we're very sensitive to these things. And there's never been information or news that's been so pervasive and persistent yeah. able to talk about these things. So it's the effect of social media, of what's happening on the ground in places like China and in Russia. It's where you're able to get to the sources, if you will. It's the ability of real-time data, uh, where it's, whether it's economic data, high-frequency data from credit card spending, or data that we track, which is supply chain data. This is all a relatively new five- to six-year development. And so, and then you have media that sort of supports this. And, and so all of these elements are now making things far more transparent. And just like watching the news, and like if you watch no, it's the terrible. news, it's, it's a pretty terrible. depressing place. And like if you read my content or Freightways content, a lot of it right now is sort of distressed because we talk about things that impact our industry. So you can call us a little hyperbolic and you're probably right. And you should take a step back from that. The reality is that we provide a resource for people that are interested in the context of what's happening. And unfortunately, these events are so destructive to their individual sort of outcomes that you end up becoming a little bit hyperbolic in how you describe them. Yeah, well, I mean, look, if I sat in your seat, I I would say my incentives are to be correct. And then, uh, you know, to the extent that I'm writing for the guy out there that may be thinking about buying that truck and getting himself screwed on a back end of a cycle, I don't want him to do it, right? Because uh, I, I, you know, I want to be accurate and I, wanna, I don't want people to get screwed. So there's two things that drive any motivation that that we have at freight waves and i think this is true for most people that are in the market is you want to be early yeah and you want to be right there is no other sort of central motivation in what we do and i think the vast majority of people sort of our human nature is that is you know we build our business to describe the things that are happening so that people can make decisions now they can say hey you know, I don't agree with this statement or this is a little exact or a lot exaggerated. Those are fine. Have an opinion. That's great. But the job that we have is to interpret the, these elements and things that people can understand and react to 
And they can make their own decision on whether they agree or disagree. And that's fine that they disagree. It's fine that they don't act on it, but at least they're informed. And our job is to, to be right about what we're seeing, inform and bring context to yeah. it, and to be early in that cycle. Because if you wait, I think way too many people, particularly reporting in our industry and, and even economists, they wait until after a recession has happened where they call it. Like, oh, that was a recession a year ago. Or like, that was like, they're always very late because they wait for all the data. And the problem is when you're in these markets, like we are in freight and supply chain, which half these developments happen so quickly, you have to be very on the front end and you have to sort of interpret and make guesses based on a lot of data. And so our goal is to be first and is to be right. And that is the only motivation that we have. I've been late on a lot of this stuff because I've been I've been waiting for the data. But I thanks to the power of Twitter, man, I've gotten myself to open my eyes and, you know, I kind of use it where I'll, I'll float out kind of a tweet or whatever. And I sometimes I try to put something that kind of like will get people to respond. But I don't I don't try to do that too often. But I, I put out one tweet this weekend where I was like, you know, trigger warning to the bears or whatever. And and it was all about how good uh, the Fed thought the economy was. And some of the comments were like, well, dude, that's that's how it looks at tops. Right. I mean, like by definition. Uh, and it got me thinking. And I said, you know what? I'm glad that I'm glad that this exists so that I can throw idiocy out there and then get less stupid. Well, the, the reality also is not only does it look at tops, but, the, but you got to think about what the Fed uses to sort of draw their conclusions is the U.S. economy and, and the global economy is massive. And there's all these nuances that happen and they're using government data. They're using officially then they have sort of secondary data points that they look at, but they tend to use these very large macro data sets to make really profound policy. And the reason that they wait for government data to, to sort of act is that they want to make sure that they've had as much perspective on what's happening on the ground and it's right because it's politically dangerous if they go the wrong way. And one could argue economically yeah. dangerous if they go the wrong way. The Fed's always going to be late to the game. It's just built into their model. And, and looking at government data versus the data that we track, we know that government data is lagging. And any commentator in freight that's using government data is going to be behind the ball. They just are because it takes a long time for the government's data to sort of show up because it a lot of it's based on survey data. Surveys are largely sentiment-based. And it takes a while before that sentiment sort of shows up with all of these sort of data points. And so because it lags, there are typically much better and high-frequency data, which is going to show sort of these developments yeah. well before it becomes official. But those... Now, it's true that this high-frequency data can also call false narratives. It's all true that it can be wrong at times. But... I think the goal of an analyst or the goal of someone like myself is to interpret that and make judgment calls by doing channel checks, make judgment calls by looking at historical patterns and saying, we believe that this is this is sound judgment to make this call right now based on what we're seeing, knowing that we're going to be so early in the cycle that a lot of people are going to call yeah. us out for being nuts. And that's okay, because I would rather have gotten that call than missed it entirely. Yep. Well, I uh, I couldn't agree more. I appreciate your time. I really have enjoyed this. And uh, I hope you have a couple flights that you enjoy uh, between now and the next time that we talk. <laughs> and uh, again, thanks, man. I, I, hope, uh, I hope people learn about you and read you. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you again. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. And you can find me uh, on Twitter at, at Freight Alley. So I'm at Freight Alley. 
It's the best way to connect with me on Twitter. Um, I don't check LinkedIn. I mean, I do get, get LinkedIn is a disaster, by the way. Can we just talk like how bad LinkedIn is? Like I thought Microsoft would fix some of it, but like, come on, Microsoft, fix it. It's so bad. I think the problem, man, is once you like figure out how to use Twitter and once you built your network on Twitter, LinkedIn just looks archaic. I think you're, I actually think you're right. And the problem is LinkedIn has this sort of, yeah, everybody's sort of equal, right? People that don't provide a lot of like it's super vanilla. Just, I, LinkedIn is a disaster. It's, I get so much inbound junk and I don't even read it. Yeah. So. I'm with you. It feels so corporate. Twitter feels like a meritocracy. And, it, and you can say what you want to say. You can be wrong and you can get called out on it and trolled. Yeah. People tell you you're an idiot and then you're like, all right, well, maybe I actually am or, or, you, you know, or you show that you're not. <laughs> well, the thing is like 20 minutes later, people for, have moved on because it's so high frequency in terms of the content. They're like, you can say something stupid and I've done it plenty of times. And yeah. 20 minutes later, most people have forgotten it. Right. So, but the, the haters live on the problem for a lot of people about Twitter is this, it invites a lot of trolls because it just, yeah. just nature of like anyone can say anything. But LinkedIn, I would pick Twitter any day over. What do you? What I gotta ask? What do you think Elon Musk gonna do with Twitter? Uh, I don't know. I can tell you that um, my strong opinion was that Twitter was was not run like a business should be run. Uh, and I think Jack even came out yesterday after the deal was done and said it's not meant to be a, a you know a business. It should be a public protocol. But I. Uh, my history with Twitter is long, um, and I don't know how else to say it, so I'm just going to say it. Um, in 2020, my wife's uh, cousin committed suicide. Uh, he was the Robin Hood trader that committed suicide. And like I used Twitter to get that story out there, and um, it like really showed me the power of that platform because my family was at a complete loss for what happened. And I asked a question because I, I legitimately wanted an answer. And, you know, it's a combination of people can't look away from something like that. But within 18 hours, I had pieced together what had actually happened without knowing anything about what had happened. And to see the power of that firsthand, I was like, oh, my God, you know, I can't believe it. Now, he has built a trillion-dollar company with no marketing expense outside of his Twitter account, basically. So, like, I think he understands what that platform is and how powerful it can be. And I think, you know, I think he's right that they have gotten a little bit overly sensitive on what is said. Uh, so I don't know exactly what he's going to do, uh, with the free speech aspect. I don't want it to become like the, the worst corners of the internet, but, uh, I, I don't mind it opening up a little bit if that makes sense. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. I mean, that's a tough, it was awful, tough. I, I remember that story. Yeah. Um, but, but it is a, it is a powerful, like if you think about the impact of social media, the bird app has the most influential people in society are somehow connected on Twitter, either on a frequent basis or, or on a, on a regular basis. There is no more powerful way to connect based on the thoughts and the, the merits of your sort of thinking yeah. and your thoughts than through Twitter. And like, it is the most powerful far more than Facebook. I mean, Facebook is, we talk about LinkedIn. LinkedIn's more of a joke of the, of the three. It's B2B. B2B media is a really, you know, there's a whole, 
So one of the things that I'm a big fan of is content supported. So uh, is this a, is this a video? Is it, are you putting this on YouTube? Yeah. So I've so I've got these flying magazines. So I bought the oh, cool. flying magazine, which is the media business for AV for for pilots because I'm a pilot. And I, Freight Waves is largely a business that for five years one of the fastest growing software companies in the in the world that largely didn't spend any money on marketing because we had our media business sort of the Bloomberg business model. You think about that, Bloomberg got to ten billion in revenue with. Yeah. Almost nobody in marketing. They spent very little in marketing. In fact, they they hired their CMO and they were eight billion in revenue, and they had like three people in marketing when she showed up. So, you, Bloomberg has the best business model of content supported data. So we did that largely at Freight Waves, and I bought Fly Magazine thinking, okay, I'm a pilot. This is a like a passion project, but there's got to be some way to monetize the content behind it. And I think. You know, we now moved into real estate, which is a different story for a different day. But like, I think Elon Musk, like you said, built this entire brand image on Twitter and created the most powerful and uh, uh, automotive company on the planet and the most valuable automotive company on the planet simply through a Twitter handle of just being a world-class troll at the same time of being a world-class thinker and has sort of built this narrative that no company on the planet has well, – automotive will ever touch yeah i i tell you i mean like when uh, and this isn't monday morning quarterbacks i quarterbacking i said this to my friends uh like when he it was wild to watch him go hostile on twitter right and make that bid and and when people were like oh he's not going to raise the capital all i could think about was can you imagine actually thinking he couldn't raise the capital like look at what this guy has done on social media. And then you saw the people that came back, came behind him and supported him. I was like, this thing's over. I mean, you know, I didn't know that the board would accept it or not, but I knew he had that lined up. And the reason it works for him so well is that he is not like, he's a bit like some of his stuff is a little like no CEO in America he plays by different rules. The stuff he posts, like the, the more like, but it's because he has delivered and had so many doubters and he continues to sort of push the envelope. It's a, it's a remarkable story. I, I'm actually yeah. looking forward to seeing how it all works out, but uh, we'll see. And I don't know how much impact he'll actually have on sort of the merits of how Twitter operates. We'll see. I think a lot, man. So I, I was part of this super follow test group. It was like a beta product. And I so people were going to pay, well, some 26 people currently pay me $9.99 a month for this feed and it's like a separate feed behind Twitter, right? So like I can tweet out something that only those 26 people can see. It's kind of a cool concept, but it's very hard to get another network started. And a lot of the value of Twitter is putting a thought out and then having like anyone comment, right? Connecting with people that you would never otherwise connect with or think to connect. With. I said like, I'm an audio brand, right? My, my super fans are, people that are fans of the podcast, I'm going to need to be able to deliver them a unique audio experience. So I need like access to private spaces. This was months and months and months ago. Their, their answer on the call to me was, well, just set up a Zoom call. And I was like, how do you not understand that <laughs> you can capture value by keeping people on the platform? And you're asking me to go out and set up stuff outside. Like, yeah. what are you doing? And not one of them was like, that's a bad idea. So I just think he's going to change the whole ethos of the company. Yeah. Well, I think the difference between like Jack Dorsey and like 2% or something. And like, 
for whatever reason, he was ineffective. Maybe it's because he owns such little of the company. I, I honestly don't think he cared at the end of the day. I think you're right. I think, but as a founder, you get that way. Like you have to sort of be re-engaged, especially when you own like 2% of the business. You're like, he, I think he came in because he felt obligated to it and it's like his baby. But I think at some point, if you can't appoint your own team and he had a finite amount of control, like I've, I've seen people sort of attack him as, as if he was incompetent, but you're like, you got to go back and read the story of, of actual Twitter as he was forced out at one point, like in the cap table, he has a, only a very small percent of the company and he didn't get to point the board. The board was largely appointed by other people. And I think as a founder, there's a lot of, you lose a lot of interest in the business when you're not, when you don't own 100% of it or you don't have full control and you don't get to make all the decisions. I think Musk just doesn't care. And he'll, like you said, I think he'll get to go do what he wants to do and the speed at which he'll do it will be pretty profound. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I the other part that I have told myself about Jack and I have no idea if it's true or not, but he came back and I think he did a lot to help the platform stay relevant. But man, like running any social media uh, platform through the Trump years. I, I don't care like which way you like, especially a Silicon Valley one. I'm sure his employees were bitching every single day. I'm sure uh, pol politicians were bitching at him every day. Like, I bet he just got run down. And then he gets this board that he doesn't like. Oh, I bet. I mean, because it was a no win no. proposition because you couldn't muzzle Donald Trump. Like, it was politically. Like you said, you had your employees on here. You have this sort of, hey, we're gonna, we want to be the the town square. <laughs> yeah, Donald Trump is relevant as a person, <laughs> yeah, but destructive as a person, right? Which is, I know, it's sort of insane when you think about like the fact that that he was president, and yet the last two years have been far more. Like I think most people assumed that after he was out, that the world would sort of calm down. Yeah, not and politically, so. <laughs> Biden is so... Like, politically, Biden's policies are quite similar to Donald Trump's if you look at it on a policy basis. It's just that Donald Trump was far more verbose. Now, Biden's tried to do things that are, you know, obviously keeps trying to move the world towards a, a far more, uh, uh, you know... The stuff he says is not stuff he's actually accomplished, but if you look at what he's actually doing is a lot of it's very similar to Donald Trump in terms of populism, nationalism. Yeah. It's just that Donald Trump was in your face about it. Like, and we <laughs> it's were all a little like, bit much. Shut up. Like, it's a is, little much. It's like, stop talking. Yeah, well, and it's just like, I, I uh, and, and then to your point, at the end of all that, after managing it, he gets activists involved and he doesn't have his own board. And I think he was just like, fuck this. Like, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, I would be. I mean, it's not fun when you're being attacked and you're... Indeed. Yeah. Anyways, well, that's for another day. So I appreciate the time. Yeah, I do too, man. Have a good one and uh, we'll be in touch.